Our scripture reading this evening is, as you would expect from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. We will continue on chapter 3. I know I made a promise long ago that we would not preach the whole book, and it doesn't sound like I'm keeping it. But this first three or four chapters depict to us the calling of Ezekiel, and they they are important to, for us to understand the rest of the book. So we're going to look through these first chapters, verse by verse, and then we will have some freedom to jump some chapters. But for now, Ezekiel chapter 3, we will read verses 4, picking up where we left last time, and read until 15. So the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 3, verses 4 through 15. Hear and receive this with faith. And with love, this is the word of the Lord to us. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I was sent... If I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the Lord, the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness. In the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal. And I sat there, and I sat where they were dwelling. I sat there, overwhelmed among them, seven days. There is much we don't know about Titus of the letter of the Apostle Paul to Titus, fame. But one thing we know for sure, he was given a tough assignment. We read in Paul's letter to him that the Apostle left Titus on the island of Crete to finish what he had started but could not finish. Titus was to organize, to put into order a formal church, a formal church structure for the congregations Paul had planted there. While electing some elders and putting together a presbytery sounds like a complicated task enough for some, 
Paul warns Titus that the people he would deal with were an insubordinate people, full of empty talk and deception. I think we have license even to laugh when Paul quotes a Greek poet who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and then concludes, this testimony is true. Sounds delightful, isn't it? It makes you wonder if Titus wished Timothy, another of Paul's protégés, had been given the opportunity instead. Yet before we throw a pity party for Titus, as we look to Scripture, we realize that not many of God's messengers were sent to audiences more well-behaved than the Cretans. Ask Stephen, Peter, or Paul about how much their audiences loved hearing God's message to them and they would have stories to tell and scars to show. And then, of course, as we already saw last week, we remember that they were all following the footsteps of their Lord Jesus who came to his creation, but they outright rejected him. You see, being a messenger of the gospel, it's a tricky thing. And before you think I'm too young in my preaching career to be already complaining, you should know I'm not merely talking about myself. You don't need to be a pastor to witness the gospel to your family, your parents or your children, your co-workers, and even yourself in your sinful heart. You all know the difficulty of being a witness of the gospel all too well. And as we investigate Ezekiel's call and the prospect he faces of preaching to such a people, his people, knowing beforehand that most of them will not listen to him, what can we learn about our struggles in our many and varied callings to carry out our Christ-given disciple-making commission? Today, as we look to the conclusion of Ezekiel's calling in Ezekiel 3, we will learn about how God calls, prepares, and encourages to be more like his son, whom he sent to earth to preach good news to stubborn-hearted people like you and like me. In summary, this text tells us that God does not call us to success, but to faithfulness. Again, this is the core of the message of this text. God does not call us to success, but to faithfulness. We'll see that in three points this evening. And the first is, whenever we deal with people, we deal with sinners. We see that in verses 4 through 7. Whenever we deal with people, we deal with sinners. Even though the vision of chapter 1 showed us how God is sovereign over the four corners of the universe with mighty, with might. We read now of a people whose rebellion against him is as impressive as wheels within wheels. Verse 7, they have a stony, hard foreheads around their minds and cold, stubborn hearts on the inside 
to match the outside. One commentator says, their faces are as frozen as their hearts. This is the people waiting for Ezekiel. And God himself helps the preacher here by illustrating the outcome of this hardness for us when he employs a recurring feature of Ezekiel's speech, the unfavorable comparison with other nations. In verses 5 and 6, we see that had God sent Ezekiel to the other groups who were also exiled under Babylonian dominion, they would at least hear what he had to say. But the proud sons of Israel, proud to be called by that name, the people of God's own choosing, will not listen. The point of this illustration, so to speak, is that the language barrier, as high as it can be, is not as hard to overcome as the spiritual rebellious carapace surrounding their hearts, minds, and souls. I mean... Look at who's talking to you right now. After a couple of years of ESL, here I am preaching to you, and here you are, more or less, understanding. Yet, as much as I may improve my accent and my pronunciation, if the Holy Spirit of God does not melt your stony minds and hearts, no words of mine will pierce the armor around a rebellious, sinful heart. In verse 7, then, God's, God gets to the root of this problem. Ezekiel, says God, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. After all their shared history of God repeatedly saving Israel's neck through signs and miracles, after everything he said and he's done for them, they still play deaf and dumb when their sinful nature is exposed by God's many prophets. And look, even we Christians who still struggle with our remaining sin until our final glorification in the life to come are like that, aren't we? It is all fun and games when our children memorize Bible trivia. Now go on then. Ask, ask them to clean the rooms or inquire if they finish their homework before they can go out and play, will they listen? It's all fun and games. When the pastor explains hard things in the Bible in an easy way to understand, but wait until he uses that to, to show me how much of a sinner I still am. Will you listen? And hey, I'm not saying that I, the pastor, I'm infallible. That's not what I'm saying. But Ezekiel is reminding us tonight that just like Israel, who know, we who know the Lord, his language, his songs, his Bible, his law, who know what he expects of us, we still play dumb and deaf when our sins are brought into focus. Does the text really say that? We ask not realizing that that's the strategy of the serpent in Genesis 1, 3. On the other hand, when we put ourselves in Ezekiel's shoes and we realize that we are all dealing with sinners in this world, 
whether family, co-workers, church friends, neighbors, the same reality can be a great source of comfort. Daniel Block, one of the great Ezekiel scholars of our time, said it better than I could ever. Quote, whoever would serve as the messenger of God must recognize that the calling is not to success, but to faithfulness. Let me say that again. The calling is not to success, but to faithfulness. Every aspect of our service, he concludes, remains under the sovereign control of God, especially the results. It's not up to us to change people's hearts. So like Ezekiel, let me encourage you, having met the sovereign Lord of the universe today, having fed on his word, we will go out these doors to witness the power of the gospel in our own lives. Like Ezekiel, yes, we will find resistance. Yet like Ezekiel, quote, embarking on this mission as an emissary of the divine king should be sufficient motivation for unconditional service, concludes Dan Block. So it's a tough task. That's the first thing we had to see. Yet, that's not there, that's, that is not all there is. Again, like Ezekiel, we are equipped by God himself to achieve his designs for us. And we'll see that in our second point tonight. God will equip us to fulfill our callings. Again, God will equip us to fulfill our callings. We see that in verses 8 to 11. It's interesting, this text, because unlike other calling narratives in the Bible, like with Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, we never see Ezekiel responding. He's a, he doesn't say he has a stammer like Moses. He doesn't cry out his spiritual shortcomings like Isaiah, nor he just cries a lot like Jeremiah. Perhaps, as one commentator noted, it would be hard to respond to God with a mouth literally full of Bible. Yet, as we see in verse 8, God shifts the tone and it almost seems like he's interrupting himself and we can only wonder, the text doesn't say that, but we can only wonder if he was responding to Ezekiel's bewildered look. Behold, he says in verse 8, hey, look. First, God tells him not to fear, for he, God himself, would equip Ezekiel for the task. Why would he need strengthen? Why would he need to be equipped? I mean, it's not hard to imagine why Ezekiel would be afraid. He saw with his eyes that God was coming to judge his people in chapter 1. Then he was told to deliver them, to them the words of lamentation and woe that he just swallowed in chapter 2. And just for context, just so you know, at this, around the same time, give or take a couple of years, back in Jerusalem, his contemporary Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned by the people of God for preaching basically the same message. 
We don't know much about Ezekiel's personality, but however tough he thought he would be, who would not flinch a little bit when facing the prospect of delivering that message to a people already in exile? Who does not flinch when having to confront people with their sins? That is why God tells him in verses 8 and 9, Are you afraid because the people are hard? I'll make you harder. Your face and your forehead will be harder than their stony hearts. God promises he will make him Ezekiel. For all the name Ezekiel means God strengthens in Hebrew. And now we know why. Second, God puts Ezekiel's position into perspective. In verses 10 and 11, God puts Ezekiel between him and the people, between the rock of ages and the hard people. On the one hand, he's called again at least twice the son of man, the human agent of the divine will. And as such, he will go to the exiles who are, God says, his people, Ezekiel's people. And while, I, while we can all appreciate that God calling Israel Ezekiel's people has some undertones of his disple- displeasure with them, he didn't say, my people, which they are first and foremost. This language hints at the identifi- identification Ezekiel must have with his audience, especially now that God will make him tough even tougher than the rebellious Israelites. You go to your people. But on the other hand, Ezekiel will go to speak God's words. And it's interesting that the content of the message he will bring so far, three chapters into the book, it's kind of only hinted at. It's not fully explained what he's going to say. Because the critical thing to notice here is the manner of his speech, how he's going to bring whatever message it is that will come, but how he will do it. He's not coming to Israel in exile as his own agent. He comes as a messenger, as an ambassador of God, to the extent that whatever he tells them, whatever he says, he always begins with, thus says the Lord. He proclaims the words he ate, and is now instructed to receive in his heart and in his ears, which is the exact opposite of what someone with a hard forehead and a stubborn heart would do. In the words of another commentator, Margaret Odell, summarizing Ezekiel's ministry between the rock and the hard people, she says the relationship between God and the people is characterized by rebelliousness. That is very clear. What this text helps us understand are Ezekiel's relationships. On the one hand, he must be prepared to endure the rejection God had endured. Yet, on the other hand, he must remain in solidarity with the people. Now, isn't this what we are called to do for this world as Christians? All of us? 
these words to Ezekiel that God will equip him, protect him, and give him word, the words he needs to witness to his people should remind us, for example, of Jesus' prayer for all of us in John 17. They are mere hours before his crucifixion. Jesus prays for his disciples, and he says that we, his disciples, are in the world, but they are not from the world. So we feel this tension of identifying with both parties. And then he prays that God would protect us from our enemies, sanctify us in his word. Isn't this basically the same thing that he just told Ezekiel? Then block again. When God assigns a task, he assumes responsibility for preparing us for that work. Indeed, God's call to service is not made based on gifts. Vice versa, gifts are given based on the assignment. So take comfort, Christian. Whatever your calling is, whatever sphere of influence you have in your family, your work, your life, your church, you always go the same way, protected by God, bringing His words to those He put in your way because you are the person that He wants to be in their way. And once again, it's the same application. This is why we are here today and why we keep coming every week to be strengthened like Ezekiel by absorbing, by hearing, by receiving God's words, sometimes even eating like Ezekiel, God's words. Then and only then we can go and bring that message of salvation to people who are just like you and me. Sinners like you and me. Wait a minute. You might have thought. This is very encouraging. And the preacher hopes makes a lot of sense. But if the people we are going, if the people we are going to are all rebellious sinners, and we are all rebellious sinners, how can we do any good? How can we make any difference if we are no better than those we minister to? Those excellent questions you just asked lead us to our final point this night. Jesus came to us so we could go to others. Jesus came to us so we could go to others. We see that in verses 12 to 15. Ezekiel's audience with God is about to end. The Spirit of God, he says twice, raises him and brings him back to his place among the exiles by the Kebar Canal. He's back at this place called Tel Abib, a name which means roughly small town left over from the flood. It says a lot in two words. Probably, uh, archaeologists believe a small settlement just by the irrigation who could be flooded every now and then if there were too much rain. It's not a great place to begin a prophetical ministry. Yet, it's where the exiles are. 
It's where, where Ezekiel lives and where God wants him to be, to be his witness. Yet Ezekiel doesn't, see, doesn't seem to see the bright side of that as we just saw. He doesn't seem to be in a great state of mind. We read in verses uh, in this section 12 to 15 that the prophet was in bitterness, in the heat of his spirit. The final words, we read that he sat there overwhelmed for seven days, which is a rare occurrence in the Bible telling us what people feel and think. But before we psychologize too much about what is happening, let's try to understand what we can learn from Ezekiel's feelings here. First, the word for bitterness, bitterness in verse 14, it's the same word that it's used in the Old Testament for example, when Esau, when he discovers Jacob stole his blessing, he was bitter. It is the same word used for the people of Israel in bondage in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1 in bitterness. Of course, you might have remembered for Naomi and her grief when her husband and her sons die, she's bitter. It's the same word used for Job in agony after losing everything he held dear. All these people share the bitterness that takes hold of us when we lose or are robbed of something and we realize we cannot recover. The powerlessness of facing something irreversible. So we realize from the outset, after we do some study, word studies, that Ezekiel's frustration shows us that yes, it is normal. Let me tell you, it is normal to feel overwhelmed by your task. Just as the fate of his people was beyond his control, we are also not in control of the fate of our children, of our churches, and even our own souls. The fact we are sinners being sent on a holy mission should leave us with a measure of healthy frustration. But it is a reminder that we are not the saviors of this world. But even more, I believe this powerlessness before the effects of sin should remind us of Him who is, who is the real Savior of this world. And I believe Ezekiel's feelings and his situation point us to that direction. The prophet Ezekiel, like I said, is between God, the solid rock, and the Israelites, a truly hardened people. He has absorbed God's words and will become God's representative before Israel, even though he is an Israelite in exile himself. And verses 12 to 15 highlight this as we see him leaving the presence of God. He's at this place where there is an awe-inducing sound of praise, glory, and worship like an earthquake to find himself then going down to a ruined city in the marshes, to rebellious people. 
Does that remind you of someone? This picture should make you think of the one person who left the presence of God in heaven to dwell among rebellious people to bring God's word to them. And you see, like Ezekiel, Jesus' ministry seemed for too many doomed from the start. In Eugene Peterson's words, the Son of Man has dinner with prostitutes, stops off for lunch with a tax collector, wastes time blessing children when there are Roman legions to be chased from the land, heals unimportant losers, and ignores high-achieving Pharisees and influential Sadducees. And then we see Jesus himself displaying the same similar feelings that we see in Ezekiel. In Luke 19, we find that when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem in the days before his crucifixion, going to the toughest assignment of all times, it says when he saw the city, he wept over it. We understand him crying over his friend that died, the other famous instance of Jesus crying, but it's hard for us even to wrap our heads around Jesus crying over the city that will crucify him in a couple of days. And as we keep reading there in Luke 19, we are told he cried in anguish, probably in bitterness, because he embodied what we just read in Ezekiel. He came from God with the words of the good news of salvation. But some of them, who were his people, were too stiff-necked and stubborn-hearted to give ears to him. And if this is not failure enough, Dr. Ian Duggett adds, he hangs pierced and bleeding on a cross. He dies, he says, the most human and radically undivine of acts. Talk about failure. However, Jesus' perceived failure was precisely the means through which he offered a better and definitive answer to our frustration ahead of our tasks. When he died, he suffered the pain and isolation of our exile and bore on his shoulders the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserved for our stubbornness. And thanks be to God that Jesus' humiliation is not all there is to him. The story continues. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And in his new exalted and glorious state, the first thing he does is commission, it's commission us, it's to commission his disciples to go to all four corners of this earth, not just to Israel, but to all nations of all different and hard tongues to understand, bringing God's word of salvation. The good news that we finally have someone who can pierce the hardness of our minds and of our, and of our hearts, if only we trust him to do so. So as we're a commission like Ezekiel was to accomplish all of that, we don't go empty-handed, he promises. 
We are equipped the same way Ezekiel was. The Father and the Son together give us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the one who changes hearts, our hearts, and strengthens us to face our own tough assignments. His Spirit, which Ezekiel leaving among the exiles merely pointed to, forever unites us rebels to the living Son of God. So my prayer tonight, as we come to a close, is that the Spirit of God, through His Word to us tonight, would assist us all to go and proclaim, to spread the honors of His name through all the earth abroad. Let us pray. Merciful Lord, the comforter and teacher of your people, increase in us the desire to accomplish what you have given us, we pray. Confirm the hearts of those who hope in you by enabling us to understand and then propagate the depths of your promises so that all your children may even now behold with the eyes of faith and patiently wait for the fullness of life we have promised in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, and together we say, Amen.